Psalm 132 is our text this morning. Please open your Bible or navigate on your device to Psalm 132. The topic, Solomon commemorates his father's passion to return the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. The title of our message, Returner of the Lord's Ark. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this gathering of your saints, a a time of uh, peace and refreshing and joy in the midst of uh, a world of turmoil. You promised you would be here in our midst in a special way, ministering to us from one heart to the next, encouraging us to minister to one another. We love being your church, gathered together in your name. You promised that your word could divide between our soul and our spirit and speak to us where no one else could. Reveal your love to us, Lord. If there's anyone here that's not a believer in Jesus Christ, I pray that your Holy Spirit would woo them to Christ, that they would see his love for them on the cross, dying for them, rising again to give them eternal life, to forgive their sins. And for us, Lord, that have walked with you for some time, I pray that we would be attenuated to what you want to say this morning. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, Amen. Tell me a little about yourself. What are your biggest weaknesses? What are your biggest strengths? Where do you see yourself in five years? If you've recently had a job interview, those might have been among the questions that you were asked. Employers sometimes ask weird questions to see how you handle yourself. Can you tell me ten things you could do with a pencil other than write? If you were a kitchen appliance, which kitchen appliance would you be and why? Why are manhole covers round? And my favorite, what is your gun noise? Pew, 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 pew. Well, what's yours? According to a group called the Interview Guys, more and more employers are asking, what are you passionate about? It's a great question to ask ourselves as believers in Jesus Christ. Before we ask and answer it, we might want to take a look at someone in the Bible who's an example of godly passion. That someone would be King David. You're not called a man after God's own heart unless the Lord is your one first great passion in life. The Lord was David's passion, and there was something in particular that he was passionate about. That something was returning the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem and installing it in a magnificent temple. It's expressed here in verses 3, 4, and 5. Surely I will not go into the chamber of my house or go up to the comfort of my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. The dwelling place he's talking about involved the Ark of the Covenant being put into its proper location. It's mentioned by name in in verse 8, rather, and called God's resting place on the earth. David's Ark in the Temple Passion was the background and the context for this psalm. Reading it gives us the opportunity to discuss our own passion for Jesus. I'll organize my comments around two simple questions. Number one, how do you express your passion for Jesus? And number two, how does Jesus express his passion for you? Let's talk about our passion for a moment. In the arcade on Main Street, Disneyland USA, there used to be a machine called the Love Tester. Who remembers the Love Tester? It was a great little thing. You'd squeeze a handle... 
and it would gauge your passion from below cold to red hot. You never wanted to do it with your girlfriend there. I don't know what being passionate looks like in your life. I really don't. There's no passion meter by which to gauge. As we use the word passion, don't think that being overly emotional or underly emotional means anything. Just because somebody shows a lot of excitement doesn't mean they're truly passionate about something. And just because people seem dull doesn't mean they're not passionate. And so we're not dealing with one particular reaction. We're dealing just with your personality, you, you know, the person God's made you, and the passions in your life. So verse 1, a song of ascents, Lord, remember David and all his afflictions. We're almost to the end of the 15 so-called psalms or songs of ascent. Psalms 120 to 134. They were the playlist for Israelites journeying to the temple in Jerusalem to attend the annual feasts. It's important we get what the psalmist means by David's afflictions. Otherwise, we're going to miss the real impact of this psalm. They're not what you think. Afflictions is not referring to things like his many years as a fugitive on the run from the murderous King Saul. Afflictions is not referring to things like the rebellion and attempted coup by his own son, Absalom. David's afflictions in this psalm have entirely to do with what we read about in verses 2 through 4. They were the hardships accompanying the return of the ark that caused him deep discomfort of soul. The ark we're talking about is the ark that Indiana Jones found in Raiders of the Lost Ark. It was the centerpiece of the Israelites' wilderness tabernacle after they left Egypt. It was a smallish box with the mercy seat as its lid. It was kept hidden in the Holy of Holies, in the holy place, in the tabernacle. The very presence of God was on earth at that spot. And by the way, Psalm 132 verse 8 is the only mention of the ark anywhere in the Psalms. Now, it isn't necessary at all to our study, but any mention of the ark arouses curiosity as to where it is today. It's believed that the prophet Jeremiah took and hid the ark prior to the Babylonian captivity. Then it falls out of history. Some say it was hidden in a chamber under the ruins of the temple and that it will be found in the last days. Others say it has been found and it's in a small church in Ethiopia. We know it's in storage in Hangar 51 in Nevada. <laughs> Why would Steven Spielberg lie? The ark was at Shiloh for nearly 400 years. It was captured by the Philistines when the Israelites wrongly took it out into a battle. The Philistines put it into their temple of Dagon, and the statue of Dagon collapsed, and God sent a plague upon them. The Philistines kept trying to rid themselves of the ark. Everywhere it go, went, it caused disaster. It finally made its way to the house of Abinadab. David sent for it. What happened next was unexpected. I'll read from 2 Samuel chapter 6. Then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments of fir wood, on harps, stringed instruments, tambourines, sistrums, and on cymbals. And when they came to Nashon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God, took hold of it, for the oxen had stumbled. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his error, and he died there by the ark of God. I'd say that if your passion for the Lord got someone killed, it would fall in the category of a hardship that afflicted your soul. 
As far as I know, in the 35 years that we've been here in Hanford, we haven't gotten anybody killed yet. And I know it's kind of humorous to say that, but we've taken some uh, wonderful trips overseas to weird places and uh, communist countries and places where there's communist insurgency and stuff like that. Uh, and and uh, nobody's been captured or tortured or, you know, assaulted or anything like that. But can you imagine, you know, here, if something like that were to happen, how it would afflict you and cause a hardship of soul? And David, David, he's trying to bring the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God, back to Jerusalem. They're worshiping on all these instruments. And all of a sudden, there's a guy dead because he mistakenly touched the Ark. This is a setback, a hardship. Now, David would get the Ark to Jerusalem only to be afflicted once again. David had what can almost be called a compulsion to build the Ark, a magnificent temple. He shared it with the prophet Nathan and got immediate two thumbs up from him. But then God sent Nathan back to tell David that he would not be the one to build him a temple. The one thing David was most passionate about besides the Lord himself, and the Lord said, no. Verse 2. He swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, Surely I will not go into the chamber of my house or go up to the comfort of my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. This is a poetically powerful way of saying, I'm not going to rest until it's done. Obviously, David would eat and sleep and attend to his other duties. We exaggerate like this all the time. Uh, you know, that's the only thing I'm going to work on until it's finished. And, you know, obviously we have other things, but it's a way of emphasizing the importance. It conveys here that his whole mind, heart, soul, and strength would be engaged in it. Whenever he wasn't doing any other necessary thing, he'd be working on it. All his waking hours into many late nights and early mornings would be dedicated to it. But wait, didn't God tell David that he would not build the temple to house the ark? He did indeed. That only fueled David's passion. It didn't kill it. If he couldn't build it, he could plan for and provide for it to be built after him. And so I think I would have, that would have been it for me. I want to build, you know, it's my great passion for you, Lord. And the Lord says, no. Now, he went on to promise David some really wonderful things about how he would build a house for David, meaning his dynasty. But still, it's like a resounding no. You are not going to do what you are the most passionate about. Well, then I'm not going to do anything. That's kind of a human reaction. But David said, I'm too passionate about this to let it go. Let it go. Uh, uh, well, I fell into grandpa mode there for a minute. But anyway, and, and so he said, all right, then I'm going to plan for it. And I'm going to provide for it. I'm going to see that it's done. One commentator said, wearied with a stormy life, he might well have left it to others to care for the work which the prophet had told him that he was not to be permitted to begin. But not so does a passionate man reason. Rather, he will consecrate to God his leisure and his old age and will rejoice to originate work which he cannot hope to see completed. Talking to his son Solomon, David said this in First Chronicles 28. Consider now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. 
Then David gave his son Solomon the plans for the vestibule, its houses, its treasuries, its upper chambers, its inner chambers, and the place of the mercy seat, and the plans for all that he had by the spirit of the courts of the house of the Lord, of all the chambers all around, of the treasuries of the house of God, and of the treasuries for the dedicated things. The whole chapter goes on to describe the gold and the silver and all the other resources and things that he had and would accumulate so the project was ready to be built. Verse 6, Behold, we heard of it in Ephathra. We found it in the field of the woods. It, obviously, was the somewhat lost ark. Let us go into his tabernacle. Let us worship at his footstool. In Isaiah 66, we're told that heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. Where is the house you would build for me? And where is the place of my rest? Obviously, the Lord cannot be contained in any earthly tabernacle or temple. Yet he condescended to be present in his glory in the ark and to meet with Israel there. Now, if you were a Jew, since we're talking about this, could you only worship God in the tabernacle? Well, when David got the inspiration to write things like, The heavens declared the glory of God, or I consider the heavens the work of your fingers. Do, do you think he was in the tabernacle or maybe outside tending his sheep, looking up into the vast expanse of, of space? Seems like he was worshiping God out in uh, the woods or out in the fields or anywhere he was. And so if you were a Jew, regardless that there were times you were to gather together in the temple... You could worship anytime, anywhere. But gathering together at the place God's presence was promised in a special way was essential. And so this is how I leap this week into reminding you how essential the meetings of the church are. If one more person tells me that the church is not a building, I'm going to lose it. I don't know what's liable to happen. I've never been in that kind of a fit of rage and frenzy before. Of course the church is not a building. Everybody knows the church is not a building. The church, in, in the sense that this, you know, wood and stucco structure. The church, however, is a building. It's the building of God on the earth. And it is a building more so when we gather together because we are his living stones put together to minister to one another. And, and I... I, I cannot believe that there is any Christian who doesn't think meeting is essential. Now, I'm not saying that there, there can't be a decision to not meet for a time. I'm not saying churches that have decided not to meet are wrong. Uh, they, they have to answer to the Lord. They, they get their own uh, you know, ministry and direction from the Lord. I mentioned a few months ago, we haven't been challenged. Nobody's come here and told us we can't meet uh, or threatened us with fines or imprisonment. I'm just saying that overall... The meeting of the church is essential. We are the body of Christ and the temple of the living God when we meet. In the book of the Revelation, Jesus made it clear that whenever the churches that he wrote to met, he was in their midst in a very special way. Doesn't mean you can't worship the Lord everywhere else. You can. But he said, in the church, I'm going to be there in a manifest way, in a very special way. And so we can worship anywhere at any time, but when we meet, we are the building. I mean, nobody, you know, let's say tomorrow after work, you say, well, your co-worker says, where are you going? He says, I'm going home. Your house is not your home. Oh, yeah, right, but I'm still going home to my house where we live together, you know, and so, so I'm going to gather with my family in what we call our home. And stuff. It, it's just so 
if quit buying, uh, people try and be so spiritual during this time. The church isn't a building. And they mean by that, you don't really need to meet. Uh, yeah, you do. You didn't have to ask David what he was passionate about. He'd tell you. Or you'd see it for yourself if you were around him. I think David had a little model of the temple, don't you? You know, uh, you've seen this before. People, you know, they, they're doing this building project, skyscrapers or whatever. And in their office, they have it all modeled out. Or you've seen the model in Jerusalem, on t- you know, either in person or on TV of Herod's temple and the city, the ancient city. I bet David had a model room. He had little figures, you know, like, like a train set and stuff and maybe water coming in through the tunnel and all that. I, I mean, you know, they, I think he got totally into it. And, and God was pleased with that. God said, you can't build a temple. You're a man of blood. Your son will do it. And he says, all right, but I'm still going to get into it. It's still going to be my passion. Your passion for Jesus may be a lifelong pursuit. More likely, in our case, it's going to express itself in different pursuits as the seasons of your life change. Something you must factor in. I think this is, I don't want to say it's the most important thing here today, but it's something that it's easy to miss, uh, or at least we don't like to think about it. You will suffer afflictions as you pursue your passion for the Lord. And so all of us, obviously, we love the Lord, we're passionate about Him and certain things, and He's letting us know, well, then you're going to have hardship as you pursue this. Like David, there may be serious setbacks akin to the death of Uzzah. Like David, you may never see the realization of your passion. Solomon did build the temple, but David had no assurance that he would. Solomon actually was kind of a prodigal, who would have broken David's heart to see what Solomon became during his reign. He trusted that uh, it would happen. Afflictions can make you want to question your choices or to quit. But in another important way, they prove your passion. Things may not work out exactly as you'd hoped. Don't lose heart. The Lord sees your heart. He sees the passion regardless the result. I mentioned the love tester. Think of any afflictions as God squeezing your heart to gauge your passion. You're not very passionate if you give up easily. Or if you don't see the results you hope for. You can, however, remain red hot. Now, how does Jesus express his passion for you? Herein is love, the Bible says. Let me uh, just list some things. Jesus is the second person of the triune God who set aside the prerogatives of his deity to become the God-man, God in human flesh. He did that because God so loved the world that he was not willing that any would perish, but that all would be saved. Jesus died on the cross, taking upon himself the sins of the world. By the power of the cross, Jesus draws all men to himself. He's the savior of all men, especially those who believe. He likens his relationship with believers to a marriage in which he is the groom and we are the bride. While we are engaged, he's away preparing our mansions in a great heavenly city, New Jerusalem. While we await his promised return to take us home, he has given us God the Holy Spirit as an engagement present promising us he will never, not ever, ever leave us or forsake us, and that he will most assuredly finish the work he started in us. As we encounter the rest of this psalm, we can see some of the ways the Lord expressed his passion for Israel and for us. And so verse 8, Arise, O Lord, to your resting place, you and the ark of your strength. 
We read in Exodus 25, 22, there I will meet with you. On the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you. Verse 9, let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy. This is a little snapshot of Israel worshiping, a little bit of heaven as they raised voices to the Lord. The priests functioning as they were called to, doing their ministry, and all of the people joining in in song and worship and sacrifice and praise. It's a beautiful thing. We could spend all morning talking about being clothed with righteousness. It's one of my favorite topics. Nutshell version, if salvation were like clothing, without the Lord we would all be clothed in filthy rags. When you believe God, he exchanges those filthy rags for a robe of righteousness that represents that you are in Christ and can stand in his presence. The church is not Israel, but like Israel, God's presence is manifested in a special way when the church meets together. We collectively are his temple on the earth, as I said. I don't know if you remember this old song that we used to sing, He is here. Who remembers? He is here. He is here. He is here, he is here, he is moving among us. He is here as we've gathered in his name. It's kind of a dirgy sound, but you get the idea. We, we believe that. We believe that there, there's some sense of the presence of the Lord when we meet. Not, it's not mystical, it's not weird. He doesn't have to manifest himself in, in strange ways. But there's just something amazing about the body of Christ getting together to worship the Lord, as we are called to do. A lot of ministry takes place. Verse 10. For your servant David's sake, do not turn away the face of your anointed. The Lord has sworn in truth to David, he will not turn from it. I will set upon your throne the fruit of your body. This is poetic language to express that God promised David that his future descendant would be the anointed, would be Jesus Christ. Verse 12, if your sons will keep my covenant and my testimony which I shall teach them, their sons also shall sit upon your throne forevermore. If the kings of Israel had obeyed the Lord, they could have enjoyed their kingdom on the earth until the Savior came to establish his kingdom. The promise that the future kingdom will come remains regardless of Israel's rebellions. They made true free will choices that uh, had consequences. Somebody the other day said, elections have consequences. Your choices have consequences, too. And God says, here's, here's what's go, what could happen, and here's what will happen if you disobey. And yet, uh, the Lord is still on track providentially to bring Jesus to Jerusalem and set him up as the greater son of David and to rule and reign over Israel. Verse 13, for the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell for I have desired it. There's a big exodus, mass exodus out of California. Some of you have got your motor running in the parking lot. I mean, we got to get out of, we got to get out of here. I don't want to, you know, uh, miss it if I have to leave. I've got my go bag ready and all they need to do is this one more thing and I'm gone. I'm out of here. And then, you know, uh, I've, I've tracked this for a while, and, and for a while it was Washington, and then it was Oregon, and then it was Idaho, and then it was Montana, uh, and then it was Arizona, and believe it or not, now it's Arkansas. Uh, these are the promised lands uh, that people want to go to to get out of California. And I, you want to get out of California, that's fine. I love California. Yes, they're ruining California. It's not the California I once loved. Uh, but, uh, you know, whatever. I, the Lord has to tell me to get out of here. And uh, may, 
maybe I wish he would, but he hasn't, I don't know, but I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure, and I don't mean any disrespect by this, it's just a personal feeling, I'm pretty sure I wouldn't go to Arkansas. Uh, so if that's your thing, but that's, the, you know, and so God says, on the entire earth, with all these great cities and this wonderful climate and everything, you know, Hawaii, uh, you know, think of all the vacation spots, the Lord says, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to set up shop there. I'm going to rule the earth and the universe from Jerusalem. And so what an amazing thing when you put it in context. There is going to be a second coming of Jesus to rule over the whole earth from Jerusalem. Now you might be noticing that in verses 14 through 18, the Lord answers Solomon's prayers one by one from verses 8, 9, and 10. You can chart it out one side and the other. Uh, Solomon prays and the Lord answers. And, And what an encouragement to be told that the Lord is going to answer your prayers the way you've prayed for them. Verse 15, I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Abundantly bless can be translated in blessing I will bless. Uh, It's a strong affirmation. I, I mean, the word abundantly sounds great, but, you know, this is, he says, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to bless how much I bless you. Uh, I mean, you, okay, wow, this thing, that's going to be really piled up. We have every needed blessing. He's abundantly blessed his church. In blessing, he has blessed us for things like gifted men and saints having individual gifts. Uh, we have the Holy Spirit, of course, living within us. And so in blessing, he has blessed us. The poor with bread is an expression that signifies provisions for a journey. It's another way of saying abundantly blesses. Everything necessary for the journey of a godly life in pursuit of Jesus is available to you. Verse 16, I will also clothe her priests with salvation, and her saints will shout aloud for joy. Salvation could be translated righteousness as it was in verse 9, and so exactly what Solomon prayed for, God would do. There I will make the horn of David grow, and I will prepare a lamp for my anointed, uh, the lamp is, bar- is an image from the tabernacle or the temple. The idea of a horn signifies a strong government. And so this is a promise that, uh, that David's throne will continue. Verse 18, his enemies I will clothe with shame, but upon himself and his crown shall flourish. This continues that clothing analogy. Non-believers will be described in shame for their unforgiven sin. They can't enter heaven in their filthy rags. Remember, we talked about the exchange that happens on the cross. Jesus takes your sin, symbolized by filthy rags, and he gives you a white robe of righteousness so that when God looks at you, he says, oh, you're dressed for heaven. There's a parable in the Bible of a marriage supper, or marriage rather, where uh, they uh, gave out garments for people to wear, and there was a guy that didn't have the right garment. And so they came to him and said, what are you doing here? You don't belong here. And they threw him out, and it says they cast him into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's, wow. Should have thought twice about that invite, right? But it's a picture of what happens in the future. It's not unusual for people. Some places have dress codes, right? Or even in the Bible, when Joseph's brothers come to see him and they're going to have dinner, he says, hey, I'm inviting you guys to dinner, but they need to be dressed in Egyptian clothing. They can't come in in these dirty, filthy outfits that they have on. And so that's the idea. If you go through a life and, and, and finally, ultimately, don't receive Christ as your Savior, then you remain dressed in your filthy garments that you uh, have been in your entire life, having had sin imputed to you and having committed sin. 
And when you stand before the bar of God, you're, you're dressed improperly for heaven. And the only other destination for you is hell. And so it's a very powerful analogy. I would submit this word etymology for the sake of accuracy. The English word passion referred to Jesus' suffering long before it involved uh, other meanings. The Latin passio means suffering. Its first recorded use is in early Latin translations of the Bible that appeared in the second century AD and that described the death of Jesus. After that, it began to develop broader meaning. The first new sense in English referred to martyrdom and physical suffering or affliction. And by the 13th century, passion was being used to refer to any strong emotion. So we can say that Jesus' passion, his suffering, was for you. And we can also say that you are the passion of Jesus. When you stand in the Lord's presence after the resurrection and rapture of the church, it won't be an interview. Jesus is not going to ask you what your gun noise is. It's going to be a review, or we could say an evaluation. I think a lot of it will have to do with passion rather than results. We always think in terms of results, don't we? What we built, what we did. We, you know, guys like to fiddle with stuff and gals too with their crafts because we want to produce something. Look at what I built. I don't know that I've ever been able to say that in my life. You should see the things that I built. First of all, I spend two or three weeks reading the directions. I have a hard time with directions. Uh, I, I remember, I mean, this is going to sound funny to you, but I mean, you, you probably think I'm smart, but I'm really not. Uh, well, I guess that <laughs> cat's out of the bag there, right? You didn't think I was smart. But anyway, I got confused one time because my prescription said take one pill three times a day. <laughs> Pam couldn't understand what I was talking about. I said, well, how can I take one pill three times? You're laughing, but I was serious. Anyway, uh, so I don't know why I'm talking about that either now, but let's go back. Let's dial it back a little bit. I really do think a lot of things will have to do with your passion, not with your results. Because so often the result isn't up to you. I remember, and just since I'm talking about myself, I'm in my old age, my diseased old age. I might as well do it, right? I remember, uh, you know, when I came here, uh, to interview for the pastor. You know, the church was here before I was here, and so I came, and I said, I, I, asked, I asked questions. Uh, after they gave me their gun noise, I said, what happens, because it was a very small group of people, I said, what happens if I come here and nobody likes me and they all decide not to come to church, you know, anymore? And they go, well, that's a real possibility. <laughs> So, you know, I, how can I be held responsible for what uh, another group of people do, right? You can't be responsible. A lot of us, a lot of you, have prodigal sons or daughters. And, it, man, it really hits hard, right? Is that really your responsibility? Can you be held accountable for those results? Or were you passionate about what you did? I mean, this really hits home in a lot of different ways. And so your interview, it's not going to be because, you, you know, your name was on a building, or anything like that. It's going to be, you know, Gene, how passionate were you? And when I hit you with those setbacks, those afflictions, what did you do? Did you harden your heart or did you continue 
in that passion. And that's what the Lord is going to probe. And God bless us. It's not an evaluation of our salvation because we were saved the moment we're saved. But uh, I think there's a lot more about love and passion and emotion than we like to admit in the Bible. We're analytical, we're scientific, we're, you know, and it's hard to talk about these topics like romance and passion, but I, I think you get the idea. So you're passionate about the Lord, and over your lifetime, you'll hopefully be passionate about some things for the Lord. And whether they're from Him or from somewhere else, you're going to suffer hardships and afflictions. What are you going to do? Don't let hardships that afflict your soul discourage you.